Hello, and welcome to another episode of Screen Bites, our thought leader series where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the commercial TV space. I'm your host, Michael Beach. This week, I'm joined by Brandon Katz. Brandon is a senior entertainment reporter for The Observer and flat out one of the best in the business. I always appreciate his writing because he has a strong point of view that he backs up with math. Please enjoy my conversation with Brandon Katz. All right, Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Much appreciated. And I always appreciate the opportunity to, to turn the tables and uh, start asking you some questions for once. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, you're putting me at odds end, so I respect the strategic pivot right here. Yeah, you also remember this. Uh, well, hey, we'll start off with an icebreaker uh, that we'd like to ask all our guests. You know, what was your first job and, and kind of what lessons did you take away from it and apply to your career? Uh, so my first full-time job out of college was actually as a sports reporter, but it was for kind of a content farm type of website. Uh, I was lucky in the sense that I was able to go right into working in media full-time, which was my goal, and I'm, I'm still very thankful to that uh, to this day. But this was not exactly the most reputable of outlets in the, in the world. They were not exactly pushing us toward the highest journalistic standards in the land. But what I did learn from that experience is versatility. Uh, you know, I eventually began covering both sports and entertainment for that site. I became their first ever regular staff columnist. Uh, I ba balanced monthly talent interviews with news updates, reviews, opinion pieces. So I wore a lot of different hats in that job. And I think in today's kind of 24-7 cross-platform media, media ecosystem, it's important that an employee is able to do multiple jobs. So I am thankful for the experience. Glad I've uh, moved on from that, you know, as my life has continued. <laughs> Yeah, and obviously, you know, we're a huge fan of your work at The Observer. You know, I think you're, you know, one of the best in the business for sure. Uh, you cover a wide area of of subject matter. Uh, you mind giving us our audience kind of an idea of of, of kind of your main focus and, and areas that you cover? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I do actually think I have kind of maintained that that wide coverage area from my first job, in that I have these broad topics that I like to hit. But uh, specifically, it's the film and television industry within that larger Hollywood umbrella. I try to do a lot of different things which range from streaming wars coverage of which I garner a ton of insight from the amazing cross-screen media. Um, I do box office breakdowns when that was a thing, uh, TV and film reviews, X's and O's of industry analysis, talent interviews, and, and more. So I, I try to have my hand in a lot of different things. I certainly love you know everything ranging from the latest superhero franchise blockbuster to the little scene uh, critical darling oscars prestige bait yeah absolutely and, and uh you know, big news recently and you, and you wrote about it last week you know the paramount plus launch um you know overall how do you think that you know what are their challenges and kind of advantage you know what does a win look like for paramount plus and kind of where do they fit into the marketplace that's a great question. Uh, I think as far as advantages, I think they have an amazing collection of kids content. And as we've seen, families with young children are one of the biggest growth demographics in terms of SVOD consumers. Uh, Paramount Plus is also leaning heavily into sports and news, which is another key attention grabbing lane to operate in. Um, I think they saw with CBS All Access, it routine, routinely generated huge Q3 growth because everyone was returning to the service or signing up for the service for the return of the, uh, the NFL. So just one data point among many that kind of underlines the importance of you know news and sports to a fledgling streamer. I also think their free service, Pluto, uh, more than 40 million active monthly users can help bring a lot of interest to Paramount+. Plus. 
One big problem I see with them, though, they tend to be kind of, uh, they want to be a generalist service, you know, the one that can compete with the Netflix, a Disney Plus, an Amazon Prime Video. Yet it doesn't really seem like they've learned from any of the mistakes their rivals have made over the last decade. I mean, there's not a single exclusive Paramount Plus original at launch to kind of anchor the service outside of the new SpongeBob movie, and SpongeBob's already such a kind of uh, diluted product in the marketplace because it's available so readily that it doesn't necessarily count. So they don't have anything to immediately drive interest, to generate conversation. Uh, had they gone the specialist route, you know, kids content, news, sports, plus Pluto, and that was their whole focus, I think that would have been a really strong niche. But instead, they want to compete in scripted fare despite being the last major entrant, and they're doing so after selling off the majority of their 2020 theatrical slate, including Coming to America, which then launched on Amazon Prime Video the same weekend Paramount Plus launched. So why not just keep that in your back pocket as a huge kind of attraction right when you're opening the floodgates? Uh, instead, they're kind of this, I don't know, I, I, it sounds cruel, but this disparate band of of brands cobbled together from the Viacom CBS li uh, library. And while a lot of those are, are really interesting, I don't necessarily think it gives them an identity. They also kind of seem to be hedging their bets a bit between pacifying Wall Street with a flashy new SVOD platform and still preserving linear legacy assets. So vastly different reasons led to like separate approaches throughout the SVOD industry, you know, but Warner Media putting WB's entire theatrical slate day and date on HBO Max and Disney opting for some hybrid releases and some free to subscriber releases on Disney Plus. Those are the types of aggressive moves I think needed to make a real dent in such a crowded streaming war, quote unquote. Uh, and it seems like Paramount Plus is kind of stuck in between in no man's land, which doesn't bode well for long term success. So you ask me what a victory for Paramount Plus looks like. I'm not sure they even know at this point. If they really, truly do want to compete, if they want to be among the three last major SVOD streaming services standing a decade from now, they need to pivot and really prioritize direct-to-consumer over theatrical, over linear legacy assets. So uh, it doesn't seem as if they're willing to make that far of a leap just yet. And I know that was a long-winded answer. I just think Paramount Plus is a very fascinating story. And of course, no one hopes a product fails. I, I think us in the industry got into it because we love entertainment. We want to see all of this succeed. I just don't know if I necessarily see that at this early juncture. Yeah, and you wrote about it, but you know, I was one of the uh, early people that tracked down Yellowstone on the Paramount channel. You know, great show, but like you said, you know, showing up on Peacock, uh, you know, as an original, a lot of people are going to find that for the first time on a competing service. It's it's odd. Now, I believe uh, Viacom CBS streaming president Tom Ryan did recently suggest, without outright saying it. That the, that the Yellowstone deal was made before the Peacock, uh, before the Viacom and CBS merger. But as we've seen throughout the industry, you can adapt pre-existing deals, you know? So Warner Media had a pre-existing output deal with NBC Universal that gave them the full rights, full streaming rights to the Harry Potter franchise. And yet they went back and tweaked the deal so that all eight movies would be available on HBO Max for the first three months after launch. There is no reason why Viacom CBS couldn't have done something similar with NBCU and Peacock. So the fact that they aren't pushing for these tweaks and innovations to prior deals, the fact that they aren't saving any content in-house to really draw new users in and appease existing users, bit head-scratching, you know? They've had a decade of other streaming services launching. 
They've had six years of CBS All Access to kind of learn and get the kinks out, and yet it doesn't seem like they have. Yeah, and I want to get into you know the the movie theaters and and kind of releases shortly. But you know, another piece of recent news last week, you know, HBO Max started to uh, you know cover a little bit more detail about their ad supported tier. I guess another two part question. First, you know, how do you think HBO Max is going as a whole, and what do you see uh, as the opportunity for the ad supported tier? Now, HBO Max, I'm personally bullish on because I think they have a wonderful collection of pre-existing content. I think they have the IP to compete, you know, relatively at the same level as a Disney. Uh, I think their upcoming original slate is fantastic. I think they have a ton of great talent relations. But me being bullish on it because my personal opinion does not equate to success in the industry field. As we've seen, HBO Max, as of January, 17.2 million activations, incremental growth. The 2021 WB theatrical slate should help, but it is certainly not growing fast enough to appease Wall Street like a Disney Plus did. Uh, in fact, of the major corporations and tech companies that have a hand in Hollywood, AT&T is the only one to see its market cap actually decline over the last 18 months. So Disney, Netflix, Comcast, NBC Universal, you know, uh, Apple, Amazon, Viacom, CBS, all of Lionsgate. All of them have actually improved their value in terms of Wall Street's eyes, except AT&T. And I think that's indicative of HBO Max's slow growth out of the gate. I hope they can turn it around because I, uh, I think it's a great service. But as for your question about AVOD, it will be very interesting to see, Michael. I, I, a reporter, I think, should never say I don't know, but I have to say I just don't know. I mean, theoretically, a lower-cost advertising-supported model it should broaden HBO Max accessibility for consumers who are hunting for bargains, you know, who are who are looking for cord cutting, cost saving options. We know Hulu generates the majority of its annual revenue from its ad supported package. Uh, we know consumer surveys suggest that the average American audience member is willing to accept ads on Netflix if the package costs less than their standard fee. So on paper, yeah, this should be a boost to HBO Max. Whether or not that turns out to be the case, Michael, that remains to be seen. Like I said, I, I am bullish, but I think their major problem has been a marketing and messaging issue. You know, Warner Media has struggled to effectively convey the difference between HBO Max and HBO to update people who used to be HBO Go and HBO Now subscribers on what the current offering is. I don't think they've done a great job clarifying lingering confusion among consumers as to who is eligible to convert, why would they want to convert, what they'll receive in addition to HBO for the same exact price, and a host of other basic questions. So, uh, like I said, I think the 2021 theatrical slate from Warner Brothers helps them to keep growing, but I think an Avon tier can help keep them there at a lower cost and generate interest, but ultimately it comes down to Warner Media getting out of its own way. And when that happens, perhaps HBO Max can start taking off like we've seen with some of these other fledgling services. Yeah, we're really, you know, extremely bullish on the the, the kind of ad-supported streaming market as long as you, you kind of have a crystal clear strategy. And I think that's been a, uh, you know, an issue from the start with uh, HBO Max, you know, back to the, the launch, you know, where, uh, you know, we featured a couple times in the newsletter where, you know, Intent and others have had to draw a diagram to explain, you know, how you get access to the service, right? And they haven't really produced, uh, you know, a solid model of what their, you know, ARPU is going to be like on the ad-supported model, you know, which like a, you know, Discovery or somebody else came out with a really clear model, like, we're going to make this much money from ad-free, we're going to make this much money from ad-supported, 
you know, it may not still work out according to plan. At least they, they've got a pretty direct direction. And so we think the demand is there for that support on HBO Max as long as the, the company itself is clear about its strategy. And, you know, with all due respect to everyone who's working hard over there, I think we've seen over the last four years, and especially under AT&T leadership, there has been a lack of clarity in messaging from the beginning. I mean, John Stanky, to the surprise of his own executive board, announced a three-tiered structure for their upcoming streaming service. This was a few years ago, 2017-ish, 2018-ish. And then they ultimately scrapped that idea, of course. So I, I think from the get-go, there's been communication issues that still need to be resolved. And in terms of transparency, I mean, even a Disney Plus, whose ARPU is far lower than Netflix because of uh, kind of Disney Plus Hotstar, at least they've been upfront and very communicative about the reasons why. And like you said, Discovery Plus, extremely clear about their plan. So we've yet to see that from HBO Max. I, I think everyone who enjoys the service is hoping that these these flaws can be ironed out, and yet they do seem to be a bit more institutional than perhaps the other issues plaguing other streaming services. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of on to it, uh, a little bit of a thornier topic, movie theaters. Um, I thought a, a data point you wrote about, I think, in the last week was really interesting, that we're almost at 50% of U.S. theaters being open, or about to open. Kind of what's your outlook on the movie theater industry? Do you think we're going to see... Uh, these direct-to-consumer releases, uh, you know, like we've seen with Warner Warner Brothers, you know, next year, like, what, what's the overall outlook? This is a great question, and I think it's probably the most important question facing legacy entertainment at the moment. Now, personally, I'm someone who doesn't think movie theaters will ever go extinct. I think there will always be a place for communal viewing of major, big-budget, ten-pole blockbusters. But everything else, you know, your mid-budget comedies like Universal's King of Staten Island, your rom-coms like Netflix's To All the Boys trilogy, your, your zany original ideas like Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead or Dwayne Johnson's Red Notice that are maybe a little bit bigger budget but aren't based on pre-existing material, those will probably continue to hit PVOD and streaming with increased frequency moving forward. I think we have absolutely seen the end of the 90 exclusive the 90 day exclusive theatrical window across the board especially after universal warner brothers and paramount all blew it up in this past year uh, of course that's going to be a case-by-case -case basis you know something like avengers 5 in the future that's going to play in theaters for as long as humanly possible because it has the earning power to demand such a release but long term i think maybe paramount's 30 to 45 day window is probably going to be closer to where the rest of the industry falls. Uh, I think ultimately the pandemic accelerated the trajectory the entertainment industry was already on. You know, it expedited this transition to direct consumer business first and foremost. Audiences now have more control over when, where, and how they watch new films than ever before. And I don't see viewers relinquishing that convenience en masse ever again. You know, it's the same way that I think the delivery option changed the restaurant game forever. Breaking the gravitational pull of your couch is more difficult than it's ever been. So we are going to have to balance the two moving forward and we'll see only maybe the cream of the crop or what studios hope to be their billion plus dollar blockbusters hit theaters. Everything else, shortened theatrical windows or, or PVOD and streaming probably. Interesting. And kind of follow up on that, you know, what uh, overall in the, the area you cover, what do you think the one thing that you think is a big deal that most people are missing? 
That's a great question. An overlooked storyline, I think, is perhaps what happens when all these windows are shortened and we're no longer putting movies in theaters for two, three months. I think one side effect potentially could be an increase in the volume of films that are actually made per year. How else do we fill that kind of negative space after a movie's been pulled 17 days in some certain circumstances for Universal? You know, a month at most in, in some of these circumstances. So how they maintain production and continue to fill out a schedule that demands, you know, 24-7, 365 content will be very, very interesting. And I also think one other thing being overlooked in terms of more so the SVOD debate, we now have eight major entrants and about, I don't know, hundreds of smaller companies uh, working in the streaming field. What happens in five to ten years when some of these start to fold, you know, when when they simply did not meet their subscriber uh, goals, where the revenue brought in just does not warrant a continuation of this business? You know, are we going to see another round of major merger and acquisition and consolidation? Are we going to see massive high priced bidding wars for, you know, an Apple TV Plus's original library? I, I don't know what's going to happen, but. We know that basic economics dictate around three winners in any kind of, you know, financial field. So we now have eight major streamers. It's doubtful all of them are going to be able to exist long term. So the conclusion of the streaming wars, to, to put it in kind of broad terms, will be fascinating. And looking you know, forward, maybe maybe put this out a little bit further, five to ten years from now as we get to the latter half of the decade, you know, what, what area are you most excited about? Uh, in the media space? I wouldn't say this is necessarily my most excited, but I would say I'm really interested to see if Amazon is broken up by kind of antitrust government efforts over the next decade. And if so, what that would mean for Amazon Prime Video. You know, uh, I'm interested to see if, as we discussed, Viacom CBS's seemingly half-hearted foray into streaming is merely a position, is merely trying to position itself for a sale in the nearest future. Uh, I'm interested to see if Apple makes a material studio acquisition to bolster or even replace Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see if Netflix can indeed make the transition from growth phase to profit phase, as they're now beginning to try and do. Uh, like I said, I think I'm excited to see how exhibitors and studios fill all this dead air. Um, and, and longer term, I'm, I'm curious as to what happens when the streaming wars start winding down. I, I really think they're going to have significant ripple effects throughout all of entertainment. And if we're worried about singular powers dominating the industry already, I mean, the rich may only get richer in the future as these smaller competitors get swallowed up and or shudder because they weren't able to compete. All right, we'll get you out here on, on one more question that we ask everybody. Uh, if you could get everyone to read uh, one book right now, what would that be and why? Can I cheat and can I give two books? Absolutely. All right, there we go. Um, one of them would be The 100-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out the Window and Disappeared. It is a comedic yet cleverly wholesome novel written by Swedish author Jonas Jonasson, and I apologize if I'm butchering that name completely. Uh, I think it shares kind of some DNA with Forrest Gump because it follows this relatively ordinary man as he lives this amazing, wonderful life that intersects with so many major historical figures and events. It's just a good, entertaining, positive read from start to finish. And I think in month 12 of a pandemic, we could all use that. Now flipping to the other side of the spectrum and actually adding on to our existential dread in month 12 of a pandemic, 
Lucifer's Hammer, a dystopian novel from the 70s about a comet that hits Earth and essentially, you know, pushes the reset button for all life on this planet with, you know, pockets of survivors navigating their new realities, trying to hold on to some semblance of society. And one reason I recommend this book to everyone is not only because it's just a really entertaining end-of-the-world novel that is, you know, far more mature than your Armageddon's, uh, which is, is maybe the first thing people think of, but I also think it's just absolutely insane this hasn't been made into a big-budget miniseries somewhere, whether it be like an HBO, a Netflix, an Amazon. It has all the makings of a true, great, like, genre blockbuster, you know, broad-appeal hit on TV, and so I'm just baffled that it has not yet been made. So Hollywood, get on that. We're starting starting to push now. There we go. I like it. Michael, me and you can tag team it. We'll write the script. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get this newsletter. We'll start a petition. I like it. All right, Brandon. Well, I, I know our uh, community is going to love this conversation. I'm, I'm uh, grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Bites. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. You can find out more about CrossGreen Media at crossgreenmedia.com. And please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, Stay to the Screens. You can find us on social media at CrossGreen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.